life itself has been almost priceless, but living has been almost worthless. We've massively stressed safety, but in the process, we've almost entirely minimised freedom. Hello and welcome to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wild from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott is your voice. Each week, Tony and I discuss mainstream Australian values, the future of the Australian way of life, family, community and Australian culture. More importantly, we want to hear from you. That is why we have the Tell Tony Abbott segment at the end of each show where you can ask Tony your questions on whatever topic you want. Phone in to the Australian Heartland hotline on 03 9946 4307 to leave your question. You can also go to the website australia.ipa.org.au where you can join the Australian Heartland community and sign up to receive this podcast sent to you each week along with special analysis from the Institute of Public Affairs. Thank you for supporting the Australian way of life. And now to this week's episode. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. It's wonderful to be with you for another episode of Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott. As a reminder, as always, to our listeners, hit subscribe or like wherever you're listening to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode. Tony, there's a lot to discuss, uh, as always, and you've made two very significant recent contributions to public debate. Uh, the first regarding China, the second regarding COVID, and you've generated no shortage of headlines in relation to both. I'd like to start with your analysis of the situation with China. You gave a speech last week uh, in Taiwan at a, a forum called the Yushan Forum. Before we get into the content of that, Tony, can you tell us a bit about the Yushan Forum and, and what it is that you were doing there? Look, the Yushan Forum has been going for, I think, five years now. It's essentially uh, the Taiwanese government's uh, opportunity to showcase Taiwan to the wider world. Uh, Because of the isolation that the uh, communist government in Beijing tries to impose on Taiwan, uh, they don't get uh, quite the same uh, roll-up of luminaries as the Chinese government's uh, Bao Forum does or... Uh, something like the Rosina Dialogue in uh, New Delhi might or the Shangri-La Conference in Singapore. But nevertheless, it is uh, quite a significant opportunity uh, for people in the Indo-Pacific region who take economic and strategic and political development seriously uh, to get together and uh, try to work out how things can uh, improve in the future and how we can avoid uh, potential potential problems. And obviously the biggest problem at the moment, particularly for Taiwan, is the increasing belligerence uh, of the uh, Communist Party of China and the Beijing government. Indeed it is. I want to quote uh, a part of one of the speeches you delivered, uh, Tony, uh, in relation to democracy and freedom in Taiwan. And you say, I quote, Taiwan will be the test. Uh, For the democratic world, that means a readiness to support this fellow democracy. Tony, to me, I think in Australia, we've quite often taken democracy and freedom for granted, whereas when you're facing an existential threat like Taiwan does, sometimes that heightens your awareness of of what's at stake. Um, I wonder whether the challenges Taiwan face uh, will perhaps rejuvenate and rekindle 
Australians' fondness for democracy and freedom in this difficult time in Australia. What what do you make of that? Look, it's a it's a fair question, Daniel. I think the uh, the issue for us is not so much our own commitment to democracy, but uh, our commitment to defending the democracy of others. Uh, because let's be under no illusions here. Taiwan is under existential threat in a way that very few other places are. The Ukraine is under existential threat from uh, Russian irredentism. Uh, Israel is never not under existential threat uh, from uh, Islamic fundamentalism in the Middle East. Uh, But Taiwan certainly is under existential threat. Uh, Basically, the government in Beijing has wanted Taiwan back uh, ever since 1949. Hmm. And the level of bellicosity across the Taiwan Strait has ratcheted up very, very markedly in the last year or so. And just in the four days before I arrived, something like 150 Chinese warplanes had entered into Taiwan's air defence identification zone Hmm. in what is plainly an act of intimidation. Um, And these are likely to ratchet up. And the worry is that at some point in time, uh, what looks like it's just another exercise uh, might develop into a real attack. And plainly, there is a David and Goliath quality uh, to any contest between uh, China and Taiwan. Uh, then the issue becomes, will the United States intervene on Taiwan's side, uh, given that it does have commitments under the Taiwan Relations Act to try to ensure that Taiwan is not subject to external coercion? So so this is the big question. Uh, Will China attack? When will China attack? Uh, And if and when China does attack, Um, Will America respond? And, of course, if America does respond, it's pretty hard to see how Australia couldn't also respond because of our ANZUS alliance with the United States. Let's not forget, Daniel, that um, the ANZUS alliance uh, says that in the event of an attack on either country or its forces, uh, we will quote, act to meet the common danger, uh, unquote. So like all of these alliances, uh, there's a bit of wriggle wriggle room in them, uh, but nevertheless uh, you'd think uh, acting to meet the common danger in the event of an attack on either country's forces uh, would suggest that it would be pretty hard for Australia to stay aloof if we want the ANZUS relationship to survive. I just want to take a little bit of a step back when it comes to military conflict and you've got a lot of experience in in the area of of foreign affairs and defence-related matters and you made this very astute observation and I'm going to quote to you what you said. You say, I am no military planner but with Sun Tzu, I imagine that Beijing would prefer to win without a fight, end quote. Um, Is it the case that military conflict is, is likely or will China continue to... I guess, undertake war by other means, such as information and economic warfare rather than kinetic warfare? How do you see that playing out? Obviously, there's uh, there's all all sorts of uh, 
challenges that uh, that Taiwan is facing right now. Hmm. Um, there's there's the intrusions into uh, Taiwan's air defence identification zone. Um, there's the uh, exercising of elements of the Chinese Navy uh, in international waters close by Taiwan. Uh, I think there's quite a lot of misinformation and, uh, you know, bot warfare, if you like, going on hmm. uh, where uh, Chinese uh, um, cyber operations, uh, social media operations, if you like, uh, try to discombobulate and dismay this kind of thing, I gather, is happening all the time in Taiwan. And the fear is that these exercises will further develop and intensify. Uh, they'll come closer to Taiwan, uh, that an incident could be provoked, uh, that the Chinese could say justified uh, an attack. Uh, if the Taiwanese are uh, able to avoid anything like that, the fear is that at some point in time, uh, the Chinese will declare a blockade. Uh, and then the question is, who is prepared to run the blockade and what is China prepared to do to stop people running the blockade? So what I think we're likely to see uh, is a continuing escalation of efforts on China's part to put pressure on Taiwan. Now, uh, is Taiwan likely to be intimidated uh, by any of this? Um, I certainly think that the Taiwanese will find it pretty daunting, uh, but whether they're uh, daunted to the point of capitulation, I think is, is, is highly unlikely. Mm. Uh, why would uh, people who are both prosperous and free uh, ever want to surrender their freedom uh, for the dubious benefits of rule by Beijing. And let's face it, the Chinese, the Taiwanese have watched very closely what's happened to Hong Kong over the last couple of years. Hong Kong was promised in a solemn international treaty between China and Britain, uh, one country, two systems for 50 years. Mm. But um, in the last couple of years, uh, the free systems of Hong Kong have been pretty substantially uh, suffocated and strangled uh, by uh, by the Beijing communists. I want to get your assessment, Tony, of the rise of China and why is it that it's become more belligerent over time. I ask this in the context of the, the narrative over the past couple of decades was really that economic liberalisation, global integration, uh, bringing China into the rules-based international order would make it more of a custodian of the kind of values that we have uh, and that would uh, facilitate a peaceful rise of China. Instead, it, it appears that that has not come to fruition and that over the last few years, there's been a bit of a recalculation about the extent to which that strategy might be successful. And in my view, it, it really hasn't been successful. It's made China prosperous, but not free. Um, would you share those views? And, and if so, can you help us understand why those attempts to integrate China may not have been as successful as we hoped? Daniel, like just about everyone, I was hopeful that as China got richer, it would also become freer. 
I thought that the degree of economic liberalisation that happened in the post-Deng Xiaoping era would inevitably, over time, lead to a degree of political liberalisation. But it seems that uh, the commissars in Beijing were prepared to allow limited economic freedom in order to strengthen their position, Uh, but that was never because they believed in freedom. They just believed in strength. And as soon as they had sufficient strength to roll back those freedoms, that's exactly what they did. So, so what we've now got is a China which is less economically free uh, than it has been for a long time, uh, and it's less politically free than it has been for a long time. Under Xi Jinping, uh, not just... Uh, have we seen the rolling back of the economic freedoms of Deng Xiaoping, but we've seen a rolling back even of the limited political liberalisation that seemed to be taking place for a while there. And and whether, how sincere any of those changes, even the Deng Xiaoping changes were, is open to great doubt. It was Deng Xiaoping himself who, who talked about hide and bide, um, hiding your strength and biding your time. Now, obviously, uh, they now think that they are strong enough uh, to drop the smiling face, if you like, uh, and uh, to snarl at the world through the sort of wolf warrior diplomacy and the bullying on their borders and the belligerence towards all who uh, call them into question that we've seen on full display over the last couple of years, including uh, the weaponization of trade against Australia. Well, just one last uh, question on China, and it's in relation to that last comment you made about trade. Uh, when you were Prime Minister, your government successfully negotiated a free trade agreement um, with China, and that generated a, a significant opportunity for the Australian economy through investment and exports of our goods and services to China, and that's created you know, many benefits to Australia. Um, I know that in recent times, you've reflected on that, that free trade agreement, and uh, with the benefit of hindsight, you've perhaps reached some different views on, on the efficacy of it. Um, can you help us understand a bit of the dynamics of, of the free trade agreement with China and um, perhaps how your assessment of that may have changed over time? Sure. Well, back in 2014, 2013 and 2014, we still had generally a a much more benign and optimistic view of China uh, than we came to in subsequent years. So that's the first point to make. Second point to make is that the Australia-China free trade deal, notwithstanding the recent problems, I think has been quite beneficial to Australia in that our exports to China increased at about double the rate uh, post the free trade deal, uh, then their imports to us increased. So I think we've benefited from it relatively more than they have. Next point to make is that free trade does boost overall wealth. Absolutely no doubt about that. Um, free trade sometimes boosts wealth more in one country than in the other country. Uh, So there are unequal benefits from free trade, although, generally speaking, 
everyone in the long run is better off under freer trade. The difficulty with China, though, is that is that for China, uh, it's always been more a question of taking advantage of free trade uh, rather than giving advantage uh, through free trade. In fact, for China, it's often be it's often been predatory trade as opposed to a free and fair trade. Hmm. Uh, for instance, uh, it looks pretty clear uh, that. Um, China has uh, engaged in uh, wholesale theft of intellectual property and technology. It's engaged in uh, secret subsidies of, uh, of businesses in an attempt uh, to dominate critical markets and so on. So while I am a huge supporter of freer trade um, and while I think that there is an argument for free trade across the board. Certainly, free trade is much more successful and much more fair uh, when you're having it with a country which respects the rule of law, which respects the global rules-based order, and which doesn't, if you like, nationalise all trade uh, and see trade as strategy by other means, as geopolitics by other means. Well, that's I think that's certainly the case, Tony, and thank you for that assessment of China. I now like to move to the second major contribution to public debate that you've made over the past week, uh, still on the issue of freedom and democracy, but more at home in relation to COVID and government's response to COVID here in Australia. Now, your contribution uh, by way of a fantastic essay is a part of a, a landmark new publication of the Institute of Public Affairs called Essays for Australia, a twice yearly publication including essays about Australian culture, society and national identity. I'm very, very excited about this publication and the first edition will be out later this month and I'll have much more to say about that including how you can get your hands on a copy. Now, your essay was uh, printed as uh, an extract in The Australian over the weekend. It's got something like a 1,000 comments on the website, which shows the interest and thirst uh, for this issue in Australia. Uh, Tony, I want to begin with uh, one of the quotes from your piece that stood out to me most. You say this, and I quote, COVID zero has meant stopping people from living in order to prevent them from dying. And you speculate that this may have something to do with the decline of uh, religion in our society and our related inability, perhaps, to have perspective on, on matters of life and death. Uh, can you please elaborate on, on those remarks? There's absolutely no doubt that governments should do what they reasonably can to protect people. But we've, all, we've also got to keep a sense of perspective in all these things. And it was pretty obvious probably by about the end of April last year, that while COVID was serious, uh, it was mostly a serious illness for people who were already very old and very sick. Now, um, the very old and the very sick deserve our help. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, but I suspect that we could have more effectively done that without necessarily locking up uh, the relatively young and the relatively healthy. 
and and that's been the problem. Uh, uh, life itself has been almost priceless, but living has been almost worthless. Uh, we've massively stressed safety, but in the process, we've almost entirely minimised freedom. I think that's finally changing, particularly in New South Wales. Um, I think we should have stopped lockdowns once we had uh, vulnerable people in nursing homes fully vaccinated. Um, but certainly now, thank God, um, the New South Wales government uh, in the lead, we are moving to a situation where um, New South Wales in particular, but it seems even Victoria eventually, uh, are going to open up uh, because they've decided that we just have to live with this thing. Uh, mm -hmm. Difficult though it might be, um, increases in hospitalisations that we might have, the occasional deaths that we might indeed get, uh, we just have to live with it. Now, thank God we've finally come to this position. I think we should have come to this position many, many months ago, uh, but nevertheless, we're here. We are, and you mentioned New South Wales and Victoria. I'd be interested to get your assessment also of uh, Queensland and WA. They appear to be fairly intransigent in not wanting to go along with the, the National Cabinet um, agreement of reopening in Western Australia. Appears uh, borders will be closed there or at least heavily, uh, heavily policed for many, many months to come. What do you think is going to happen with, with Queensland and, and Western Australia? How do you see this playing out in those two states? Well, for a long time in every state, with the partial exception of New South Wales, uh, the test of good government was having no COVID cases. Mm. Now, under the assault of the Delta variant uh, in New South Wales first and, and then Victoria, we worked out that you actually can't eliminate the, the Delta variant of COVID, you do have to live with it. Mm. Uh, and that's the situation that is now developing in those two states. But in the other states, particularly in Queensland and Western Australia, I think they are still committed to COVID zero. Um, they are still mentally committed to locking down their cities and their states if there are any outbreaks. Now, as soon as you open the borders uh, with New South Wales and with Victoria, you are inevitably going to start to have outbreaks in Brisbane and in Perth, which is why I think the temptation in both those states will be to keep the state borders closed for a very, very long time indeed. Now, I just don't think that uh, uh, state borders closed more or less indefinitely is compatible with the kind of federation that we thought we were living in. Tony, I just want to uh, put to you one more quote in relation to your assessment of, of COVID and then we'll, we'll move on. Um, this is your quote in, in your article in The Australian. Uh, perhaps we really have become a more timid and fearful people or perhaps it is more uh, that an anxious and adrift society can't readily distinguish between big crises and, and little crises. And I just want to set up the context. You're talking here about the apparent popularity of many of the measures implemented by, by governments, the dr draconian restrictions uh, that have had widespread public support um, for much of the last 18 months. 
Can you elaborate on and give us your assessment of what you mean in relation to the Australian psychology or the Australian character? Well, Daniel, I can fully understand why people want to be safe. Um, And I can fully understand the old uh, dictum, safety first. Mm. But it's almost like we've succumbed to safety only uh, Mm. at this time. Um, And it's almost like um, the only disease we're interested in is COVID. Uh, The only disease that no one is allowed to die from is COVID. Um, The only hospitalisations that concern us are COVID. Well, the truth is that, as they say, no one gets out of life alive. Uh, Sooner or later, all of us will die of something. The important thing is to live life to the full every day we've got. And in the attempt to ensure that absolutely no one anywhere uh, got COVID lest they die. By gee, we've stopped a lot of living life to the full, haven't we? And I think it's time that we uh, pretty drastically um, rework the dial on this. No, I completely agree, Tony. And I just want to thank you again for your your ongoing analysis and contribution to to public debate. It's needed now uh, more than ever. And I thought we could conclude just on, uh, you've been in Taiwan. Uh, Now you're over in the United States. Um, Are you able to let our listeners know uh, what you're up to in in the US at the moment? Look, uh, I've got uh, uh, a few speeches and workshops to give. I don't think that they'll be particularly newsworthy because uh, they're mostly Chatham House discussions of, Mm. I guess, general economic, cultural and security issues. But, look, this is what prime ministers do uh, once they've left office, Daniel. Some of them. Uh, We do our best (laughs) to make ourselves useful by giving others the benefit of our experience. And if our experience has generated any wisdom along the way, well, we try to make that available to people. No, we appreciate it. Our listeners appreciate it and certainly Australia appreciates your ongoing engagement and contribution to public debate. And I really appreciate you taking the time to continue with these important discussions as you've been in Taiwan and now in the US. Um, So thank you very much, Tony. And with that, we'll let you get on with it. And I look forward to talking next week, Daniel. Lovely. Thank you, Tony. All right, mate. Good stuff. Thank you for listening to Australia's Heartland with Tony Abbott and thank you for your support of the Australian way of life. This has been a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more or to become a member, head to ipa.org.au.